Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at SalemAlliance.org. Today we're continuing our series called Choices, Decisions That Shape the Soul. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. Have you ever thought about what your last words are going to be? Aren't you glad I led with that happy thought? (laughs) I mean, if you're younger, you may not have thought about that at all. Or maybe you've had the experience of being around someone that was speaking last words, and it caused you to kind of lean in and listen a little bit more. But think about it for just a minute. What what are your last words going to be? Who's going to be in the room? Will you be one to speak courage and blessing over the people around you, or you be one to air grievances. Like, I want to speak blessing to you on this side, and uh, Uncle Bob, remember Christmas in 95? You're out. (laughs) Or or will you be one that's like, I want you to have this, and I want you to have this, and I want you to have this? Because here's the deal, and, and spoiler alert, we're all going to die. And Psalm 90, verse 12 says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. And that's a verse about life, not dying. We want to be able to live well so that when we get to the end of our lives, we have something important to say. We have something important to pass on. You see, intentional last words reveal your heart, reveal what you lived for, reveal your purpose. Let me give you some examples. Here's some famous last words. P.T. Barnum, the Barnum and Bailey circus guy. His last words were this, how are the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? (laughs) Right, so what was he focused on? He was focused on his business. He was focused on what it was that he built up. Maybe you would go a different direction. Oscar Wilde, he's the uh, brilliant writer, albeit uh, morally bankrupt writer, but he infused humor into his last words. He said this, either that wallpaper goes or I do. (laughs) And he did. Winston Churchill said this, I'm bored with it all. It's interesting, isn't it? After he'd done so much, he just said, I'm bored with it all. Elizabeth I, Queen of England, she said, all my possessions for a moment of time. This idea of all this stuff that I have, man, I'd give it all for one more moment. Maybe your last words would be a little bit angry, like Karl Marx. You see, his housekeeper rushed in when she knew that he was on the edge of dying, and she said, please, give me some last words that I can write down for all of humanity to read. And he said this, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And she wrote it down, and that's what we have. (laughs) So we have his last words. How about this? I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Regret, And that was said by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, What more could he have done? We're going to talk about last words this morning. We're going to talk about the last words of David. You see, this morning we're wrapping up our choices series. And we've looked at the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, and we did a snippet of who Samuel was, and we spent a little bit of time on Saul and his kingdom that wasn't to be, and we've spent the majority of our time on the life of David. And so today we're going to look at David's last words. Now, honestly, admittedly in Scripture, there are many last words of David. 2 Samuel chapter 23 begins with, these are the last words of David. And then in the next chapter, we find him talking again. 
Now, that's it probably, it, as you look at it, it looks like this is the last psalm of David. But then in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, we have David kind of standing up and giving his last words. And just when you think that he's done talking, we have 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and 29 as the last words of David. Now, David was 70 years old when he passed away. And he reigned for 40 years. And so what were his last words going to be? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. We're going to focus on his last public prayer in chapter 29. But to set the scene, 28, it says, David summoned all of the officials of Israel to Jerusalem, the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the army divisions, the other generals and captains, the overseers of the royal property and livestock, the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the other brave warriors in the kingdom. And then David rose to his feet to speak. And so how is David going to stand and give his public last words? How is he going to sum up 70 years of life, 40 years of reigning as the king? Now, I'll be honest, I've read through all of the last words in the various books of the Old Testament. And my first expectation was this, was that David was going to stand up and he was going to kind of rehash the past a little bit. First, he'd talk about the glory days. He'd say, I want you to remember Goliath. That was a good day. And, and the battles that he had won and, and him becoming king and the ark returning and rejoicing and dancing and peace in the kingdom and its borders expanded. And you can hear all along as he's rehashing the past, someone's humming the battle hymn of the republic in the background and, and David is going for it, right? And Saul has killed his thousands, but I have killed ten thousands, almost as if to say, you're welcome, and then, of course, in his rehashing of the past, there would have to be the obligatory apology, right? He would say, and I do again want to apologize for the Bathsheba incident. And Uriah, well, and Tamar, and Absalom, and that whole mess, kind of my family is a little bit out of control, and, well, the census was a bad idea, but I just want to say that none of these things <laughs> reflect my heart and the heart of the God that I serve, Right? But honestly, as you look at his last words, you don't see Bathsheba and you don't see Goliath. You don't see any of these incredible victories and you don't see a lot of the defeats in his life. It's different than that. But that's kind of what I walked in expecting because honestly, as we've studied the life of David, I've really leaned into his life because I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm so glad that God chose him because I like to see that he has success and he has failure. He has victory and defeat. He has ups and he has downs. He has times of worship and times of wandering. Now, I don't think that my highs were as high as David. I have never been king of a nation as of yet. <laughs> I don't think my lows were as low as David either. I have not arranged for someone to be murdered. And I will not do. But I connect with his story a lot. You see, honestly, in the life of David, we can see that there was a bunch of this. Right? Wasn't there just a bunch of trash in David's life? And as you look at the life of David, like I said, he has all of these things. He's got the Bathsheba thing. He's, he's got the Tamar thing. He's got the Absalom thing. There's just a lot of trash. And as we've progressed in this series, I've heard a lot of people say, I used to like that guy. But the more I study his life, I'm not so sure. 
Right? How could God choose David to be king? How could David be a man after God's own heart? Why didn't David crash and burn? It's almost as if we wanted to do this study up until David became king and then just call it good. Right? Let's study his life while everything's going well. And then when we get to this certain part, we just want to skip over that. What if it was our life in the spotlight? What if the series had been a series about me? What if it had been choices, decisions that have shaped Brian Candela? First of all, none of you would have signed up for that series. <laughs> but what if there were commentaries written about my life and blogs and small group discussions on my dating standards in high school? Or my thought life or words that I used when I thought I was being funny but were so harmful to people? I mean, how well would we hold up under the scrutiny that we've put David to? And I know we want to step back and we want to say, yeah, yeah, but the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He's a biblical hero. I'm not. But you know, if you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you are chosen, that you are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. You see, when we see David's trash, we want to distance ourselves from it. We want to define him by all of the trash in his life. But we've got trash in our own life, don't we? I mean, I don't need people to point out the trash in my life. I know that it's there. Oftentimes, it's just below the surface waiting to come to life in a quiet moment when the noise dies down a little bit or when I'm ready to try and do something big. I'm reminded of the things that I've done in my past that maybe disqualify me from doing that something big. And it's almost as if the trash in my life is kind of on this infinite loop, always replaying itself. And that's kind of how David felt when he leaned in and lived into the sin in his life. Psalm 51, verse 3, he said, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Another translation says this, for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. David knew he had trash in his life. And he said, at times, it's, it's just right there. It's always before him. I think that's especially true in the digital age. You see, when I was younger, when most of us were younger and we did something stupid, nobody was recording it on their phone. <laughs> nobody was going to post it. But now I feel like with this generation of students coming up, their sin can always be before them and everybody else in the world. And so what do we do with that? You know, with David, we want to distance ourselves. We want to define him by that. We want to judge him by that. But what do we do with our own trash? What do you do with the trash in your life? Do you try and hide it? Are there things in your life that you feel are so bad that if anyone else knew about it, they would never look at you the same again? And so we want to hide the trash in our lives. Because we don't want other people to know because they'll define us by it. Maybe you justify the trash in your life. Maybe you just say, that, that's just the way I was born. That's just how I am. That's how I'm wired. Or maybe a lot of this trash is my parents' fault. They passed this down to me. Maybe you have excuses for it. Maybe you want to cause a diversion and say, well, at least my trash isn't as bad as David's trash. But the hard part is oftentimes, you know, the longer we let the trash sit around, the worse it smells. Sometimes we live into our trash. You know, it starts with this feeling of guilt. 
We don't need other people to make us feel guilty. We're guilt sponges. We can feel guilty ourselves. And you live into this guilt, but then the problem is guilt leads you down this path from guilt to shame. And shame is worse. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. This is just who I am. And because of the trash in our lives, we feel like it disqualifies us. That it, it puts us on the bench, we're on the DL, that we're not qualified. How could I possibly serve? I can never be good enough. I'm not lovable. You see, when David lived into his trash, here's how he felt, Psalm 32. He says, when I refused to confess my sin, this was his experience, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. We've all had that experience, right? When we kind of lean in, when we let our trash define us, that's how we feel. Just wasted away. And we know that. We know that our trash hinders our relationship with God. It hinders our relationship with other people. It takes away our freedom. But what did David also know? The very next verse in Psalm 32, he says, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And he says, so rejoice. You see, what David understood is that I just need to acknowledge it. I need to repent of it. I need to confess and I need to receive forgiveness. You see, secrecy and silence and avoidance just leads into the guilt and shame. But David understood that while sin was a part of his life, was a part of his past, it did not define him in the eyes of God. David was defined by grace and forgiveness. And he can learn about his sin, but he doesn't have to live in his sin. And it's the same with us. We are not defined by our trash. I want us to hear that you are not defined by your trash. You're defined by forgiveness and grace from a wonderful Savior. You see, grace does not diminish sin. Grace understands the full implications of sin, but grace does not condemn because it knows the price has been paid. God is in the restoration business, not the condemnation business. Your trash doesn't define you. And I love that Jesus wasn't afraid to be associated with David. The very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, it links Jesus with David. And all through the Gospels, you see Jesus being called Son of David. And in the last chapter of the New Testament, he's called Son of David. From beginning to end, Jesus is associated with David. We are not defined by our trash. We do not have to be defeated by our trash. David understood that. And that's why it didn't make his final words. Now, David also had some great stuff in his life, right? There were a lot of wonderful things. David had a lot of trophies. Right? David had trophies. He, he had Goliath. He had the ark. He had victories. I, I think one of his trophies was bringing along uh, Saul's heir to the throne and bringing along this young man. He had these trophies. A lot of great things that he did. Do we want to define David by his trophies? 
Think about it. What are your trophies? Maybe you think your trophies are possessions. Maybe it's a house or it's a car or an Apple Watch. Anyone? <laughs> Come on. Come see me after the service. I just, I'm curious. Maybe, maybe your trophy is a title. Maybe you're the Northwest Regional Sales Superman Awesomeness Great Potentate of the Year, and you're proud of that title that you have. Or maybe you know that it's deeper than that. Maybe you would say it's service. It's the things that I get to do, maybe even at church. This is the trophy that we give to adults who ride for 24 hours on a bus to Mexico. <laughs> Thank you so much. Your reward will be great in heaven. What, what is it that you're good at? What, what do you play well? What do you do well? You see, we're achievers. We, we like our trophies, but the problem with our trophies is that we want to be defined by them, and once we get one, we want another, and we want a bigger, and we want to do better, and that leads to perfectionism. And that's not a healthy place to be either. Brene Brown says this about perfectionism. She says, perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Like if I can, if I can get enough trophies in my life, then, then I can control how people see me and I can kind of compensate for all the trash that's in my life that I know about so I'll do really well on my trophies and I will prove to you that I'm valuable. And that's how we can live, right? We can try and prove to other people that we're valuable. We see it everywhere in the movie Rocky. Adrian, his girlfriend at the time, asked him, why is it that you have to fight? Why do you have to go the distance? And he says this, then I will know that I am not a bum. I'll know I'm not a bum. In the movie Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrahams explains why he has devoted his life to the 100-meter dash in the Olympics. He says this, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Can I prove how good I am, how valuable I am? Let's take a look at these words from the great theologian Madonna. <laughs> now, Madonna, this is an article in Vogue magazine where she was talking about how she listens to entertainment reporters and reads the magazines to see what they are saying about her because she feeds off of that. She says, now I've got the verdict that I am somebody. But the next day I realized that unless I keep going, I am not. My ego cannot be satisfied. My sense of self, my desire for self-worth, my need to be sure I am somebody, it is not fulfilled. I keep thinking I have won it from what people have said about me and what the magazines and newspapers have written. But the next day I have to go and look somewhere else. Why? Because my ego is insatiable. It's a black hole. Wow. She knows herself, right? Are we defined by our trophies? Now, there's always more, isn't there? There's always more for us to do. And so if you start defining yourself this way, you're going to fall short too. It's the same way as defining yourself by your sin where you know you've fallen short. If you lean into your trophies, I mean, I look at my, my life, I know there's always more I could be doing. I have never read the book Love Does by Bob Goff. I should have read it. I don't forward emails that say, if you love Jesus, you'll forward this email. 
Sometimes I throw away things that should be recycled because it's easier to throw them away than clean them. I figured that was religion in Oregon. We could go with that one too. Here's the biggie. I chose not to end childhood hunger. You ever go to Safeway? When you slide your card and they ask you, well, I was at Safeway a couple weekends ago and my youngest daughter was standing next to me and I hit no and she goes, dad, you don't want to end childhood hunger? And I was like, holding these groceries and I'm like, here, take them. Give them to hungry children. The rest of the weekend, anything I did that was not right in her eyes, she said, yeah, and you also chose not to end childhood hunger. We're always going to fall short. We can't ever do enough. Here's what David knew. First Chronicles 29, verse 14, he says, who am I? Who are my people that we could give you anything? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. David knew that any blessing that he had, he was just returning to God. See, we love our trophies. We want to be defined by our trophies because we believe they make us more valuable and more lovable. But I think deep down we understand that that's not enough either. David was not defined by his trophies in the eyes of God. He knew it all came from God. We are not defined by our trophies. That's good news, too. Just as good a news as the fact that we're not defined by our trash. You see, your trash does not disqualify you, and your trophies do not gain you some higher sense of approval. That's not the way it works. So David, somehow, over his life, had figured this out. And when it came to his last words, he understood where his identity was. David's identity was in knowing God and being known by God. And you see that from the outset. Even before David was anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he was watching sheep. And sometimes a lion or a bear would come and and try and get one of the sheep. And David said, because I trusted in God, I would go and I would kill that. And that's what equipped him to fight Goliath. And when he stood before Goliath, he said, God's going to give the victory. It's not me. He knew his identity was in God. Oftentimes, we're the victims of identity theft. Oftentimes, we think our identity just lies in our trash, and we're horrible. Sometimes we think our identity lies in our trophies, and we're proud of ourselves, as if these are the only two things that can give us identity, and we bounce back and forth between the two, and we let other people label us that way by things that we've done wrong or things that we've done right, or we label other people that way. Church, these do not define us. We are defined by who God says we are. We are defined by knowing him. We are defined by the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so how do we keep grounded with that? How did David come to the end of his life and look back and say, my identity is in the Father? 
Because that's what David knew him as. David knew him as father. He knew him as almighty. He knew him as deliverer. He knew him as everlasting. He knew him as protector. And that's what defined his life. First Chronicles chapter 29, if you start in verse 10, he begins his last public prayer, his intentional last words. And, and he's going to give some insight in how do we keep our identity firmly in God. He says this, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. And this kingdom, this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. You see, the first thing I would say is this, we need to worship God and have that reality check. It's not about me. We need to worship God that way. David lived as if the kingdom he was building was God's kingdom. And it wasn't his own kingdom. This past week, I read the last words of Philip III, the ruler of Spain. He said this, Oh, would to God that I had never reigned. Oh, that those years I have spent in my kingdom, I had lived a solitary life in the wilderness. Oh, that I had lived a solitary life with God. How much more securely should I now have died? How much more confidently should I have gone to the throne of God? What does all my glory profit me but that I have so much the more torment in my death? See, he lived for kingdom first, his kingdom. It's a trap of leadership. It's a trap of life. And so for us to find our identity where it should be, we need to lead lives of worship. You see, when David's identity was in his trash, he couldn't worship. Psalm 51, 15, he, he says, unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. I don't want to live in this mess. I want to worship you. And so we need to worship God. The second thing we find is in verse 17 of his final prayer. He says, I know my God that you examine our hearts and rejoice when you find integrity there. You know I have done all this with good motives. And I have watched your people offer their gifts willingly and joyously. I would say this, motives matter. We need to continue to examine our hearts so that we're not counterfeit, so that we're not fake, so that we're not pretending. Too often we wanna prioritize behavior over everything else. And when we prioritize behavior first, then we think the trophies matter most, and we get devastated when the sin comes into our lives because we should have behaved better. When we prioritize behavior, our behavior becomes detached from our hearts. And it's the problem that the Pharisees had. And in Matthew 15, it's what Jesus addressed. You're so concerned about the way that you're acting, but God is concerned about your heart. And so we have to continue to examine our motives and our heart. Why am I doing these things? Is my identity truly where it should be? Who are my trophies for? God cares about our hearts, and the behavior will come from that. And lastly, David admits in verses 18 and 19, he basically he just says, help. We can't do this on our own. He says, God... Make your people always want to obey you. And he prays that for his son too. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all your commands. God, we cannot do this without you. We need your help. Where is your identity? What is it that defines you? 
I'm a father. I have two amazing daughters, and I do not love them any less when they sin. And I don't love them any more because of their trophies. I love them because they're my beloved children. That's how God sees us. And so continue to worship, continue to examine our hearts, and continue to cry out to him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we do want to keep short accounts with you. We do want to confess our sin before you when we mess up. We don't want it to be overwhelming. We thank you for your grace and forgiveness. And so I just pray this morning that you would give us courage to confess, to repent. And I pray that you would give us courage to receive the forgiveness that you offer. Thank you that we're not defined by the sin in our lives. And also thank you that we don't have to perform to gain your approval. That we are not more lovable because we do better things, but we are loved because of who you are. God, I pray the blessing over this congregation this morning of an identity firmly rooted in who you are. Give us the courage to live into that. In your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.